Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I want to give a shout out to our new listeners in Singapore and Sweden, and like always, thank all of you so much for listening. Please show us your support by giving us a five-star review on whatever platinum you use to listen to us. It'll help us out so much. You can also drop by our Patreon page and really show us some love by tossing us a couple bucks. I'll put the link down below. This week, we're going to talk about the Morris Murders, a grisly string of child murders which started in 1963. The murders were committed by Ian Brady and his girlfriend, Myra Hindley. Now, what I find to be one of the most unusual aspects of this is the way that the pair was eventually caught. First, we're going to look into serial killing teams. Now, they're not as rare as you may think. According to Eric W. Hickey, a forensic psychologist and the author of Serial Murders and Their Victims, more than a fifth of serial killers operate in teams. Most are two-person teams. One is always a dominant person who looks for someone deeply insecure, often going after young, needy, mentally unstable, or individuals with low intelligence. In his analysis of more than 500 serial killer teams, each had one person who maintained psychological control. The relationship is characterized by strong interdependence and with both parties needs something critical from the other. Al Carlisle, a former prison psychologist, explains, the dominant person needs the follower's total loyalty in order to validate him or herself. The subservient follower needs the power and authority of the dominant person, so he or she attempts to become that person's shadow and mirror the dominant person's beliefs and ethics. Each receives justification from the other. Now the dominant person has a kind of murder radar. Once a person's murder radar homes in on a likely partner, the next step is usually a type of test. Predators are like sharks, waiting to see who will swim by and take the bait. When they find one who responds the way they're hoping, they think, is this someone who can do this with me? They might say, what would you think if I were a rapist? If the person thinks it's cool, they can take the next step. What a dominant predator wants is complete psychological, and if they're a sadist, physical control. Having this kind of dominance can change and accomplish his potential moral conflict. The partnership has more emotional significance than any personal moral code that might have caused the accomplice to resist committing a crime. Former FBI Special Agent Robert Hazelwood and Janet Warren, a professor of clinical psychiatric medicine, published a study in 2002 that offers some insight into the development of killing teams. They interviewed 20 wives or girlfriends people who are considered to be compliant accomplices of sadistic sexual predators. Four of them had observed or participated in the murder. Now, despite having such a small sample, their study, which was reported in the Journal of Family Violence, remains the standard for understanding an accomplice's experience of assimilation. Most of their subjects were middle-class women with family backgrounds of physical or sexual abuse. 
whose male partners had transformed them through a series of steps. First, the men identified them as a vulnerable person. Then they seduced them with gifts and praise while isolating them and eroding their self-preserving boundaries and sense of sexual norms. Some also use a common process that is used among many abusers. They layered cruelty and punishment with kindness and affection. They met the women's needs before inflicting their pain. This is something called love bombing by some. This initial show of love is just a ploy to acquire information for leverage. Then they'll introduce a sexual act outside the women's experience. Obtaining compliance, they add others until deviance is their normal routine. They increase their partner's dependence and restrict outside contact. Already vulnerable, these women come to need the men for self-worth, companionship, and a direction in their life. Most have dependent personality disorders and low self-esteem. Those that Hazelwood talked to indicated that they were feeling abhorrence about the situation, but also complete intimidation and subservience to the men. Accomplices, their motivations to participate in murders were very complex, but they tended to range from love to fear for their life or of others that they loved. Some adopted distancing mechanisms, such as disassociation or looking away when violence actually occurred. Generally, they had to agree to something they fundamentally loathed, like harming or killing someone, in order to acquire something they needed or craved, such as security, social status, or love that they had become dependent on from their male partners. It's very, very rare for a female and male-female killing teams to take the lead, but it does happen. In 2013 in Pennsylvania, Miranda Barber, 19, suggested to her new husband, Elite, that they kill someone together, assuring him she had gotten away with it before. Married for just three weeks, they used a Craigslist ad to meet and lure a 42-year-old man named Troy LaFerrar. At Miranda's instruction, Elite hid under a blanket in the backseat of their SUV as Miranda drove to a mall to pick up their victim. Once Troy was seated, Elite forced a cord around his neck to incapacitate him while Miranda stabbed him. They then dumped his body, cleaned up the SUV, and went to a strip club to celebrate Elite's 22nd birthday. When they were caught, Miranda suggested that it was self-defense. Elite, however, the much weaker of the two, immediately admitted their guilt to the police. And it's not always a romantic relationship that have a dominant aggressor manipulating a weaker person to commit murder. In the case of John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, who, for three weeks in 2002, randomly shot 13 people in Washington, D.C., killing 10, the relationship was like that of a father and son, with the younger man desperately in need of a paternal figure. Malvo, 17, had grown up in an abusive and neglectful family. He knew of no other way until he saw how John Allen Muhammad acted towards his own son. Muhammad's actions towards his son had a profound effect on Malvo. When, without being asked, Muhammad bought drinks for the other kids who were playing with his son. 
it showed a glimpse of what Malvo desperately wanted, attention and love. Muhammad cultivated an emotional connection with Malvo, offering him praise and support. Eventually, there was nothing Malvo would not do for his father figure. Now, that's a look into serial killing teams, how they come together, and how one manipulates the other. Let's look at Ian and Myra's dynamic and their crimes. Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, Scotland, Slum on January 2nd, 1938. He had a single mother named Peggy Stewart. She never knew his father's identity. Unable to afford a babysitter and working as a waitress to support them, she was forced to leave Ian alone for long periods of time, and she gave him up for unofficial adoption when he was just four months old, visiting him regularly until he was 12, although he never, she never told him that she was his mother. Ian was a lonely and difficult child. Despite the best attempts of his adoptive parents, he was prone to temper tantrums and he was slow to integrate with his peers. He developed a fascination with Nazis and the writings of Nietzsche, which is not all too uncommon. Killers like Leopold and Loeb use Nietzsche as something of a blueprint. Many find the idea of the Superman. They think of it as a, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it mean that it fell? Well, they use Nietzsche as kind of the criminal version of that. If I commit a murder and I get away with it, then did I really commit a murder? So the goal is to commit a crime and be smart enough to not be captured, proving that you're what Nietzsche calls the Superman or someone of a superior intelligence to the rest of humanity. Ian began a career in petty crime, starting with burglary, which resulted in his return at age 16 to live with his mother and stepfather, Patrick. In order to avoid getting a prison sentence, he tried to gain a sense of belonging with his new family. It started by taking his stepfather's last name, but he found true excitement through his continued interest in the Third Reich, as well as the writings of the Marquis de Sade. He returned to a life of crime within a very short period of time, and as a result, he ended up in Strangeways Prison when he was 17. There, he was forced to toughen up considerably while he was learning rudimentary bookkeeping. Following his release in 1957, he became even more of a loner, employed at several different manual jobs for short periods of time, until he finally took a job as a stock clerk with a Manchester firm. It was there that he met Myra Hindley while she was working there as a secretary in 1961. Myra was born on July 23, 1942 in Manchester, England. Her father, Bob, was a laborer who served with the Parachute Regiment during the Second World War. He was extremely abusive. He beat her regularly when she was young, but also taught her how to fist fight. When her sister Maureen was born in 1946, Kinley was sent to live with her grandmother where she had a normal childhood and was introduced to the Catholic Church. Kinley was drawn to Brady immediately. She saw romance and intelligence where other people saw aloofness. She wrote a diary, keeping all of her intense feelings for her over the course of a year before he finally showed interest. He eventually did ask her out and he quickly introduced her to his extreme political views. He took her to see the film, The Nuremberg Trials, on their very first date. 
and encouraged her to read things by Hitler and the Marquis de Sade. Brady was the first man that she had ever been involved with, and she was soon completely under his control. Dressing and doing her hair exactly the way he liked, and accepting his extreme political views. And after a short time, posing for nude pictures for him. Encouraged by her unquestioning acceptance, Ian's ideas became even more and more outrageous. And finally, they culminated in him instructing her that murder and rape were the supreme pleasure. Ian tested her blind allegiance by pretending to plan a robbery and was gratified when she took all the steps necessary to execute the plan without asking any questions. Ian recognized that he had found the soulmate he had been looking for, someone who could assist him with his perversions. On the night of July 12, 1963, 16-year-old Pauline Reed became their first victim. She was kidnapped by Myra on her way to a local dance then driven to where Ian was waiting for them. Pauline was raped, beaten, and stabbed before being buried. Four months later, on November 23, 1963, 12-year-old John Kilbride disappeared from the vicinity of a market in Ashton-under-Lynn, never to be seen again. On June 16, 1964, 12-year-old Kenneth Bennett disappeared while on the way to his grandmother's house. His disappearance was not discovered until the next day, and a massive police search revealed nothing. Myra had, in fact, lured him into her car with a request for help unloading some boxes, then met with Ian on Saddleworth Moor, where Keith was taken to a gully, raped, strangled, and buried. On the afternoon of Boxing Day, 1964, 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey disappeared from a local fairground, and once again, massive police search was launched. This time, it included volunteers, and once again, they found nothing. Now, this is around a time period where Myra and Ian started hanging out with Myra's sister, Maureen, and her new husband, David Smith. In the beginning, David was drawn to Ian's views and thought his mixture of Nietzsche and white nationalism was smart and thought-provoking. Ian, however, having never had any close male friends, was hoping to bond with David and draw him into the lifestyle of murder and mayhem he had with Myra. Ian discussed committing burglaries in graphic detail with David, and since he never voiced any objections, he thought he had found a kindred spirit. So, on October 6, 1965, with David in the kitchen, Myra, brought in a new victim. David heard a thud, and when he went to the living room, he witnessed Ian killing 17-year-old Edward Evans with an axe. After Evans was finally choked to death with an electrical cord, Myra and Ian joked about the mess, and also told David of other victims buried on the moors. David helped them clean up, and then he went home to tell his wife, and alert the police. After hearing David's tale, police showed up with reinforcements at Ian's home and found the body of Evans in an upstairs bedroom. They arrested Ian immediately. Ian claimed there had been an argument between himself, Evans, and David 
that had just gotten out of hand. He absolutely denied that Myra had anything to do with it. She remained out and free until four days later, when police found a document in her, in her car which described in detail how she and Ian planned to carry out the murder. The investigation probably wouldn't have gone any further if David had not mentioned Ian's claim that there were other bodies buried out on the Saddleworth Moor. Already familiar with the various unexplained disappearances, police were able to pinpoint the area that they believed Ian and Myra had been, had been using as a dumping ground, and they began digging for the bodies of children who had gone missing over the past two years. First, they found the body of Leslie Ann Downey on October 10th, 1965, and 11 days later, they found the body of John Kilbride. Despite discovering two bodies, the police had only circumstantial evidence against the two. Fortunately, a more thorough search of their home led to the discovery of a luggage ticket in Manchester Central Station. There, police found sadistic gadgets and pornography, including photographs of Leslie Ann bound and gagged in Myra's bedroom. And a tape recording was found in which a little girl can be heard crying and begging for her life as well as the voices of Ian and Myra. Her mother, Anne, was forced to identify her voice on the tape, even with mounting evidence against them. Brady and Hinley denied murdering Leslie Ann, trying again to implicate David. They claimed that Leslie Ann had left their home unharmed and that Smith must have murdered her later. The evidence leaked Myra and Ian with John Kilbride's murder was not as strong, but proved to be enough to charge them. They were also charged with the murders of Edward Evans and Leslie Ann Downey and John Kilbride. Despite exhaustive searches, the bodies of their other two supposed victims could not be found and no charges were filed. Ian and Myra were brought to trial at Chester Aziz on April 27, 1966, where they both pled not guilty to all charges. Now, media interest was insane. The pair's failure to show any remorse served to make the public even angrier than they already are. On May 6, 1966, Ian was found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey, John Kilbride, and Edward Evans, while Myra was found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans, and for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had killed John Kilbride. They were both sent to jail for life with a minimum recommended sentence of 30 years for what are today known as the Moore's murders. Now in 2002, Myra handed over, now in 2002, personal documents of Myra's were handed over. They had been written for lawyers and until then had remained completely secret. They described a litany of sadistic abuse by Brady with threats of murder if she did not comply with him. The papers were personally handed over by Myra when she was escorted from the H&P High Point to West Sussex Hospital, where she died later that day in 2002. They formed part of an appeal to reduce her life sentence, one which motivated Ian to write to the Home Secretary, Jack Straw, in a bid to stop her efforts. He claimed that the pair were a unified force, 
not two conflicting entities, and that Myra regarded periodic homicides as binding them together forever. Myra died at age 60, but prior to her death in 1997, Brady wrote the Home Secretary to try and stop her from being freed from her life sentence. It also coincided with a high court appeal against a ruling that his accomplice should never be released. He said that he lied to cover her for 20 years before she began to fabricate stories about the way he treated her. And in 1987, Brady and Henley, both Ian and Myra, confessed to two more murders, that of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, whose bodies have never been found. Now, Ian was declared criminally insane in 1985 and confined to the high-security Ashworth Hospital, where he died in just a few years ago. Actually, just last year, in 2017, excuse me. Now, that's the story of Ian Brady and Myra Henley, considered the Moore's murderers. Now, next week, we're going to take a look at the crime that actually was the basis of the movie Fatal Attraction and what came to be known as the very first case of erotomania or when someone has a psychotic delusional belief that they are in a romantic relationship with a person that just does not exist. So I'll see you here again in two weeks. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.